Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, so my name is Rachel Woody. I'm here on November 20th, 2014 at Bethel Heights, and I'm here with Ted Castile. And my first question for you is why wine? Well, it didn't start out as uh, wine. Uh, I think, and I think you get different answers from other members of our family. But f for me, it was sort of a lifestyle choice that we made here. Uh, and I think, it, to some extent, it's a sort of a, a, a common theme in our generation of bringing the work life and the home life together. And uh, we'd been teaching uh, high, in, at the University of Michigan for several years. And, uh, you know, sort of at, at a time then, we kind of decided that we wanted to do something. We had a little opportunity because of a, a, a small inheritance that went a lot farther in those days than, than now. And so we, uh, we went to UC Davis. We decided to, because we fell in love with wine in Europe when we were doing our dissertation work. Uh, for a year and a half, we lived in France and, and Italy. Uh, so there, we, we thought about pottery and on, in the San Juans and lots of other stuff, but this seemed the most interesting. So we, we left uh, Michigan, went to UC Davis for a year, and uh, took all the Viticulture core courses there, and then bought this property, and we've been here ever since. And it was sort of 76, 77, something like that. And the, the wine was an interest, but it wasn't uh, the driving force that brought us here. Uh, it was uh, a lifestyle change and, uh, you know, raising our kids here and uh, the beautiful place. Can't see much of it today, but uh, it's, uh, it was that, that's kind of, in my mind, why we ended up here. Uh, and uh, it's, it was a good choice. For me, also li liking to be outside. Uh, and, you know, kind of living in libraries for seven or eight years while I was getting my PhD and my, I have a theology degree too, and all that, I felt like I really needed to get outside. And so I'm the outside person here. You know, I've uh, been in charge of the viticulture for 30 some years. My daughter now is taking more and more responsibility for it, but uh, I'm the, the grape guy, so. The grape guy, yeah. I like yeah. So how did you pick this plot of land or, or why the Eola Amity area? Well, uh, back in those days, there, you know, other than maybe wanting to be in the Dundee Hills, uh, there really e wasn't even that much there at that time. Uh, uh, it was just the happenstance of uh, an, uh, this property was put up for sale one year after the first vines were planted here because of a, a bad business decision uh, on the part of the person who founded it. Um, he had to pay all of his investors back and, and uh, get going and so uh, we it, it was advertised in a national publication and we came and did our diligence on it and we're, we're helped by Dickie Rath uh, and uh, lots of other people and you know I mean if, if you've seen a lot of vineyards you walk onto this property and say yep that's a, you know a good place to grow wine grapes uh, the elevation the exposure uh, and all the rest of it, but it was pretty lonely here. I mean, Amity Vineyards had been founded to, to our north in the Yellow Hills, 
But other than that, there were just a couple, uh, three little, very little vineyards. And so this was a major undertaking down here. We planted 50 acres. All of a sudden, we were one of the largest vineyards in the Oregon wine industry at 50 acres back then. And, uh, you know, and just gra gradually kind of, uh, we grew grapes and then in 84 founded our winery. Uh, so we were, you know, we were producing vineyard and, and we're producing into the 90s. Uh, before we became an estate winery, really, and uh, that the wine became the sort of primary focus, although it, grapes always have to be a primary focus, too. So, anyway, so, long-winded answer. <laughs> no, 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 it was a good answer. Yeah. yeah. So your role, you're the grape guy, but this is, of course, a family operation. So how has that evolved, or, or what is that like, I guess, to have a family operating? Um, well, there are lots of good things about it, you know, I, again, bringing the work life and the home life together. Uh, the fact that we did it with my, my brother and, and uh, my sister-in-law, Marilyn, and also Pat's sister is also a, an investor in our business and has been kind of part of our business from the beginning, although she doesn't work here. She lives in Portland. But uh, I think the, the key to success, a lot, you know, people used to say, and you may have already heard it from other members of my family, is that the, the, the gallows always said, if uh, you're going to be successful, everybody has to have their own discrete area where they're in charge. And that's kind of the way we worked it out. And my brother was a winemaker. Uh, my sister-in-law, Marilyn, was our business person. And Pat was our marketing and promotion person. So we each, you know, we obviously interrelated a lot, but uh, we each had an area where we had kind of the uh, first authority. And it kept us out of each other's faces. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's worked. It's, it's, it's never easy, but it's, it's been a good thing. Yeah. And we're not unique. I mean, I mean uh, our, this industry is, is, is kind of uh, known for the fact that it's a lot of small, small family businesses. There's no big corporate entity here yet. Well, there are a couple that are sort of in, but not. They didn't start here, and, and they don't control the politics or the culture or anything like that. So it's good. Yeah. So you guys entered Oregon industry is still in its infancy. Yeah. And beyond just taking care of your own vineyard, I know that the family was very involved in a lot of the other, like, international Pinot Noir celebration. Um, now the Low Input Viticulture and Unology Group, mm. which Pat has already yeah. told us that you've been a huge founder and investor uh, in that. Uh -huh. could, you, could you talk about the different groups that you've been involved with and, of course, with Live? Sure. Live actually came fairly late because uh, it wasn't founded until 1997 and happened at the other end of our building here, uh, what used to be our tasting room. But uh, before that, I would, my, my main focus was on the, the research side. And uh, in, the, in the 1990s, we were figuring out how to do all of this outside. The whole industry was a big sort of laboratory of discovery in terms of What's the best way to grow wine grapes here? Uh, what's the best plant material? Um, all those things. Uh, how do you control the disease in all, all the vineyards? And so I, uh, I worked uh, uh, on what was called the Vine Improvement Committee, which had a lot to do with the acquisition of plant material and all that. And, the, uh, and I chaired it at the end of the 1980s. 
And I was also the chair of the, uh, there, there was a, a part of the Horticulture Society, they have an annual meeting, and I chaired the great part of that, uh, which kept me involved. And then in, in uh, about 1990, I moved onto the wine, uh, the, what was called the Oregon Wine Advisory Board then. Uh, and that's where it had two missions. One of them was promotion and marketing, and the other one was research. And I became the research chair. I chaired the board at, twice uh, during the 90s and was just involved in all, of, all of the research stuff. Wasn't the only one, obviously, but uh, it's kind of been my fundamental passion. And I, you know, in, I've been part of uh, the, the founding of the Oregon Wine Research Institute, Corvallis. I'm on the board of the uh, Ag Research Foundation and stuff like that. So that's where a lot of my energy has gone. Uh, but live, uh, it was in the early 90s, we hired a viticulturalist at Oregon State who was trained in Europe. Uh, her name was Carmo Vasconcelos. And uh, she had come out of uh, an institution in the European grape community that was all about sustainability. And she wanted to bring those ideas here. And uh, in the beginning, a lot of the founders were saying, well, we just don't, we don't need another uh, uh, group of people looking over our shoulders at how we do things here, you know, especially regulators and stuff. Uh, but over the period of three or four years, I, in my mind, what uh, I became convinced was that we needed, uh, we needed help. We needed to have a, 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 a culture of sustainability that was supported by an institution. Uh, and so in 97, uh, a group of, it, it, with Carmel's help, a group of the people in my neighborhood, uh, uh, one of them's not with us anymore, another went away and came back, but we, we founded the LIVE program, uh, Low Input Viticulture and Enology. And uh, it was the first uh, internationally certified uh, sustainability program in viticulture in the United States. Uh, and it took California another 10 or 12 years to get to where we, we are. Uh, and it's third party certified, it's very rigorous. Uh, it, it doesn't, uh, it's not trying to be organic or biodynamic, but we share a lot of things in common with them. And we meet with them occasionally and do things together. Uh, but it's, it's the organization that is trying to go out and um, uh, encounter people, growers in our industry, wherever they are in their cultural practices, and using a kind of positive point educational program to bring everybody along. Uh, and it's very rigorous, and uh, it took, took me two and a half days to fill out all the stuff and provide all the documents and everything this year. Uh, it's a kind of something we do through the year. So that it's scientific farming. We're using the softest solutions to problems. We're trying to reduce and eliminate all off-farm inputs, whether it's diesel or pesticides or whatever. We'll never get there, but that's the goal. Spraying less and less, uh, you know, and all the rest. So that's, it's been a really good thing. And about 40% of the industry is now not just enrolled in live, but certified by live. Uh, San Michel's part of live now. Uh, there are other uh, producers in Washington State who have joined live. Walla Walla, the Walla Walla wine industry has uh, probably got the highest uh, uh, percentage of, of growers over there, actually, more than we have here, because they joined as an industry. Yeah, and it was sort of neat when they decided to do that. 
Uh, and we've been asked all over the country by, you know, and, and people from the East Coast, the industries on the East Coast, would we certify them? Uh, because we're the only people that were really doing it, you know. But, uh, you know, we tried to keep our focus here. It's now a, a regional organization, but uh, it's been very successful and very gratifying to be part of it, you know. And it's, now I'm not, even, I'm not on the board anymore. My daughter's on the board. And all these uh, next generation people have taken over the institution and uh, it just keeps going and getting better every year. So it's good. And it sort of uh, was founded outside of the usual industry politics. Uh, you know, it's just like uh, IPNC and the Oregon Pinot Camp. Uh, they've all been sort of just driven by a few people who had an idea and, and got support from everybody else. And, and uh, it's been a good thing, so, yeah. So, but I'm, you know, we're definitely live certified here and all the rest of it. Our winery is now certified, our processing is now certified. And those are important distinctions to, to notice because uh, one doesn't mean the other. You know, live, live grown grapes aren't, doesn't necessarily mean a real live wine. You've got to have the building certified and be doing all the sustainable work in, inside the building and in the processing and all the rest, so. Mm -hmm. So, anyway. Something to always work towards. Right. Yeah. 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 It's a process. It's not. It's not a, a destination, but it's a. It's a journey, or I mean, it's all the sort of trite things you say, but it's. It's kind of the way it is. Uh huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned your daughter Mimi. Uh -huh. and, you know, she's now in the family business and also, you know, on the board for life. Yeah. How has that been, or what is that like for you to see your daughter come into the industry? And I know you're. Um, nephews as well or yeah Owen. they're both in the, in the business my daughter uh, we have two daughters the other one works uh part-time marketing in, in the chicago area for us but uh no it's really it's it's a it's a wonderful thing to have the kids taking over and uh you know just it's it's uh, i'm so proud when they're you know mimi was just recently the one of the mcs at the, the salute event you know She's uh, great in front of her group. Uh, she really understands all this stuff now. Uh, she, she has a master's degree in, in forestry from Oregon State and was you know, kind of like me, an outdoor person to begin with and uh, worked for the Forest Service for a few years before she came back. But it uh, seems to be a common pattern. The kids, uh, you know, like I, I've got a, a, a photograph with, of myself on my four-wheeler and all these kids were you know, in uh, uh, high school and, and younger, and they're standing around on the, the bumper sticker on the front says, hire, hire a teenager now before they know, uh, while they still know it all, or something like that. <laughs> and that's kind of the way it worked. They worked for me, but you know, it was just what they did to make money in the summer and to learn how to, to work and uh, to value work. And they all went away and then they all came back. Not all of them, but most of them. So it's been good. And it's worked out in, t in terms of timing, too, that uh, my brother, I, my brother's my twin, and he has Parkinson's and has become uh, more and more, you know, a stay-at-home person. But we have Ben now to uh, take over that responsibility and, and uh, bring his own special touch to it, you know. The, the wines, I think, have had a, uh, a kind of common theme to them from the beginning, you know, a light touch and that sort of thing that Ben has carried on, my brother started. But, uh, 
kids really add something to it, you know, a little more amplitude to what we do and energy and, and, uh, and all the rest so that think we can kind of fade away while they're really taking over and, and they're ready to. It's just, for me, it's hard for me to give up what I, I, I love to do, so. Uh, but we have now 100 acres and it, uh, you know, there's a lot of grunt work that needs to be done in the vineyard that I can continue to do and Mimi can be a, more, more of a, a leader in the viticulture in the industry and, you know, make the big decisions now, so it's good. Yeah. <laughs> How have you seen the industry change? Oh, well, it's, uh, you mean since the beginning? Well, it's, it's, changed, it's changed a lot. Uh, you know, it, 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 the lucky thing about what we did, you know, I mean, we could have been satisfied and felt good about it if this had been like Virginia, where they've got a, a wine industry, but it's not uh, considered a world-class wine industry. I mean, the fine wine industries are very limited mainly on the West Coast here. Uh, not even California is all fine wine. But the fact that, uh, you know, out of this idea that a couple of people had that come here and grow Pinot Noir, uh, over the, just the 30-some years that, I, that I've been here and doing this, it's become a fine wine region. You know, it's one of the hottest wine regions in the world. And it's been a combination, I think, of being in the right place and uh, uh, growing, um, uh, a variety of grape that is one of the most highly valued that's for whatever reason thank god really does succeed well here you know expresses itself it's itself more fully than most places so that was luck and to some extent but then it's it's the culture of our industry too which i think is is uh, unique to some extent related to uh, the culture of oregon uh, as uh, you know the edge of the frontier uh, a lot of really self-reliant people here who are not tradition-bound, who are willing to innovate and, and beyond that to work together and collaborate with each other. Uh, and we're not all rushing forth to become the star here. Uh, the community is more important and the culture of community and collaboration is more important. And that's how I think we've had so many great things happen here that uh, it's not just one person, it's everybody working together. And, uh, you know, the f feeling that if, you know, if somebody down the road has a great success, I'm not going to feel envious. I'm going to be, because I, I realize their success will rub off on us too. And, you know, if, if we have a success, it, it raises everybody's boat. And I think that's... Uh, that's really neat. It's, it's harder to find that in California, although, you know, we have a lot of colleagues in California who um, collaborate. A lot of the people in our industry came out of the California wine industry, were trained at Davis and, and uh, worked down there for a long time before they came here. So that's, that's been good. They're smart people all over this country growing wine grapes, you know, it's not like we have the edge on it, but it's, part of it is just the way we work together that's been a, kind of one of our secret weapons in terms of being successful and uh, and having this thing grow and grow and grow and get better and better and better. Right. Yeah, so, I mean, I think that's how we, we've gotten from the whence to the where to uh, uh, at this point, but I think, you know, the sky's the limit. It's, uh, but it's lots of things and it's a lot of work. And I think, the, you know, what Pat would say, and she would be right, is that in, you, you can grow great grapes uh, and you can make great wine, but in the end, it's also going, about going out and selling it. And uh, 
that's you know where IPNC and OPC and knocking on a thousand doors a year with your wine and all that. It's uh, you can't stand still. So that's why we need the young people with the new energy. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So you had mentioned the where to and the next generation. If you were able to tell the future, where do you see that next generation going with Oregon wine? Boy. I don't, I don't really have a vision for that. That's sort of up to them. Um, but I think, you know, th we need to, to become, I mean, we're now a national uh, a brand. Oregon wine industry is a national brand, but we're not really quite an international brand yet. Uh, and, you know, if we're going to take the step to be like Burgundy or Bordeaux or some of these other really fantastic fine wine regions, uh, we have to we have to be in the international market, and baby steps have been taken. In a way, it's a question of also a, uh, reaching a critical mass in terms of how much wine we have, how much acclaim that we've uh, garnered for our wines. Uh, but uh, you know, I think that that's that's one of the next steps. I, I don't know whether it's the only one, but uh, and you, you know, you give away a lot of money when you start selling wine overseas because there are a lot, a lot more people in the middle. But uh, still, I think it's good, and it, uh, it, it's, it's starting to happen. Well, the fact that the Burgundians are coming here now to buy, to buy land, and I mean, I sold grapes to, to two of them this year. <laughs> uh, you know, it, that's, it, that's a start in, in terms of all of that, so, yeah. How have you seen the viticulture piece evolve? Um, well, I think, I mean, one of the things I, I just said it when I was uh, making a presentation, I don't know, about a month ago uh, to a group, uh, is that it's one of the un, uh, uh, less appreciated parts of our success has been the fact that we do have a world-class viticulture here. That, uh, it, and you just drive around here and look at vineyards, you know, whether they're five acres or whatever, they're being farmed at a very, at a very high level. Uh, so that's that's a big positive. Uh, to some extent, uh, you know, and, and we're always trying to get better at what we do. You know, I, uh, we have chronic problems that we face every year. You cannot grow wine grapes uh, without protecting for, from powdery mildew anywhere in the world anymore. Uh, you know, not, nothing's immune. But we've developed technology here. Uh, in, including a, a place over here in our, in our block, the USDA scientists, uh, we're called mildew traps. So we can actually use, using D, DNA, DNA technology, we, we, we trap mildew through the year. And, uh, and these things are spinning and then we take rods to Corvallis. I mean, it, 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 but it, it's saved me about 30% of my sprays compared to the way we used to do it, where we would just go out and proactively out spray you know, through the whole season. But it turns out that until the nighttime temperatures get above 50 degrees here, we pr the mildew can't really survive. And, uh, and there are probably other factors too. But uh, I mean, it, in other words, it's, it's a improving what we're already doing. So we're spraying less, so we're more sustainable. We're driving through tractors through the vineyard less. We're bringing less chemical into the vineyard. I mean, that's one of the things that we're doing uh, in, 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 on many fronts. We now have nine scientists in Corvallis that are working on our problems. 
and uh, we have a very active uh, viticulture tech group that meets uh, six or seven times a year. Uh, that inter we, so we're interrelating with the scientists and uh, con constantly working on, uh, you know, whether it's a chronic problem like mildew or uh, really trying to fine tune our, our, our crop load. Uh, which, you know, we, we, uh, one reason we're very different than east of the mountains is that they can get nine tenths of the acre over there and we're between two and three here. Because we're really doing our business on the, on the margins of viticulture and we barely get ripe every year. That's where the best wines are made. But uh, uh, so that we really have to have a kind of a fine-tuned view of what's enough and, and what's too much. And we have a 10-year crop load trial. 14 vineyards are participating. Uh, they're all very professionally managed and, and we're getting great data. We've been, I've been doing it now for four years. And I think that we've probably been undercropping a little bit. And you know, for me, a, a half a ton to the acre more, uh, times 100 acres, is $150,000 to me. So uh, that I can be spending on other things, you know, or uh, we can be spending on other parts of our business or whatever. So, I mean, there are lots of ways that the viticulture is gradually getting better. It will, it may well look the same in terms of the architecture of the vineyard and. Uh, the vertical training and all the rest of it. I, uh, I don't think we've got, we're gonna have another experiment about that uh, starting next year. In fact, they're planting it down in Corvallis now. But uh, it's, it's the little things. And then, and then of course, there's all these insects in it with global warming and all the rest of it, or climate change, crawling north from California. Uh, every year there's something else, you know. Uh, the, the brown marmorated stink bug, which taints wine. Uh, we're finding, well, there, it's, in, it's in Portland now. It likes to live indoors in the winter. So cities are where, but it's a horrible problem in, on the East Coast and it's found its way here. So it's lots of things. It's not just a question, in other words, of getting better and better. It's also protecting ourselves from uh, whether it's a new climate or new insect pests or all the rest of it. It's, uh, it's a constant challenge to stay on top of things. And uh, so we have, we have a really good research program. Uh, we have a lot of great scientists and we have an industry that's fully engaged, which is, I think, the real key. Because otherwise these scientists would sit down there in their ivory tower and you know, worry about tenure more than they're worried about our problems. So, yeah. So, <laughs> a long answer. And it, it, you know, I, I, I don't know whether all the vineyards, uh, you know, 10 or 15 years from now are going to be twi planted twice as dense and uh, whatever. Uh, to some extent, the economic forces do drive what we do too. So, what we can sell our wine for. I mean, we were doing space very wide here in the beginning because that's how they did it in California. And you could plant a vineyard for three or $4,000 back then. But now, you know, we're all on rootstock. The plants cost 10 times as much and uh, the, the trellis material costs four or five times as much. And so uh, part of it is having a wine that's considered valuable enough to be able to support the, the best viticulture than you can imagine. And I think we're sort of there on that one now, but uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. A big part of 
the Oregon wine industry in the early days was figuring out how to market the wine. And you know, so Brand Oregon was sort of the, the marketing strategy that emerged. Now there seems to be a movement towards regional identity. And I'm wondering for Bethel Heights, you're part of this wider Willamette Valley region. Is there something unique about the Yola Amity appellation? And, and if so, what is that? Um, yeah, I, I would say it's certainly different. I would ne not necessarily argue that it's better. But it, you know, if we all made exactly the same wine, uh, it, it wouldn't be very interesting for the consumer. <laughs> uh, here, we're, we're more exposed to the coastal influence because of the Van Duzer Corridor. Um, although, you know, during the day, our high, high temperatures will be the same as in the Dundee Hills or other places. But it's the nighttime temperatures and what happens late in the afternoon here when the wind starts to blow through the Van Duzer that uh, gives our wine, it, it, and, well, in the end, it means a little more acidity in our wine. And probably because, uh, you know, that some of the phenolic compounds are, are not respired to the same extent as they are to the north because of our cool nighttime temperatures, there's a little better color. Uh, so our wines are a little brighter and probably a little darker. Uh, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, it just makes our wines a little different. And, uh, but other than that, I mean, we, we all, these hills, the hill chains that run down the center of the Willamette Valley are, uh, you know, they have lots of things going for them. You know, the, the soils are, are really good for wine grapes. Uh, there's lots of good exposure. You know, we're on a south slope here. East slopes are also very good uh, on the other side there. West, probably a little less good, although, I wouldn't want to, you know, get too carried away when I say that. Yeah, yeah. But um, they're, they're all good places to grow wine grapes. And because they're, they're in different situations and, you know, the heat accumulated is a little different than all the rest of it, the wines are different. And, um, you know, whether they're more red-fruited, I think, like we are down here, or more black-fruited a little farther north, difference is good. Yeah, so, yeah. The regional thing, I, I think, one of, one of the problems that we've faced as an industry for a long time in Oregon, you know, talking about the whole state, I mean, I think it's a good place in general to grow grapes, uh, except where it's too cold or not warm enough on the coast. Uh, uh, one of the problems is that it, it, it was sort of a hindrance to those of us who, for instance, grow Pinot Noir, that we couldn't talk about Pinot Noir when we promoted ourselves. It was about the, the brand Oregon, the larger generic brand or whatever, which actually still has, it has quite a bit of power in the national market. I mean, but it, you need also to, to understand what makes you unique and uh, what makes you special. And uh, that's why there's been this tension, especially because we have a pot of money that comes through the state and the state has to serve everybody. Uh, that's why OPC and IPNC are both funded by just the producers up here. And we have a, a very active Willamette Valley Wineries Association that funds stuff that's just about us. They're rebranding Pinot Noir right now at the, in the Willamette Valley Wineries Association. The, the Oregon Wine Board couldn't do that. Yeah, so it's, the politics is a little complicated. Uh, it's all worked out, uh, but uh, you know, it's it's true that in, you know in, Burg in Burgundy is just like here, where you know they they have Burgundy, the, the broad Appalachian, and with the 
that makes wines that all kind of taste like Burgundy. But then they have their special places that, uh, where they talk about what's special about them. And I think that you need to be able to do both. Yeah. So. Well, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you would like to talk about or that I should have asked you? Oh, I don't think so. If you've talked, if you've talked to my wife, you've probably already, already heard more, more, more than... Right. You know. we, we did hear a few stories. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But she's, she's been... Uh, I think my own opinion, and I'm just saying this as a, a, a prejudiced person to some extent, but I think that the two people who have been the most important, uh, in, especially on the promotion side, uh, in our industry and have been have done more than anybody else are my wife and David Adelson. Uh They, they uh, inv invented uh, Oregon Pinot Camp, which I think is the one single most important uh, uh, thing that's happened in terms of promoting uh, Oregon Pinot. Uh, and it goes on and on every year. 300 or so more people from the top people in the trade come here and uh, get invested in us. You know, and this was after tw spending 20 years knocking on doors all over the country and trying to talk up what we're doing here. The idea of bringing people here. I mean, everybody's copying the idea now, you know. It is a, it's a, so, uh, and, but, and, and she also was the executive director of IPNC. And uh, she goes to, I, I don't know how many meetings a week. I mean, there's lots of stuff going on that nobody even knows about going on there. That, you know, beginning of something new, you know. But, a, a new big uh, event. I, they're talking about uh, an auction event that will uh, uh, be like nothing we've done here before. This stuff's all being cooked up, you know, and, and Pat and David are both part of it. So, right. yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, and, yeah, I'm glad you came and especially talked to Pat because she's been a, a really formative figure and uh, she's a very smart person, uh, among other things. <laughs> so. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. Sure. Thank you so much for your time, Ted. My, my we'll... pleasure. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.